according to our final and ultimate authority, the word of God alone, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ for the glory of God. That's good. It's good truth. Can't be reminded enough of that good truth. Now, despite my best efforts to try to keep up with Keith's pacing, uh, I had to cut my passage in two today. It's uh, for your, your benefit. I was going to try to get all the way to 917, but my five points there are three and two. At least that's the plan for that. But uh, thank you, brother, again. Just enjoyed, missed being here, but enjoyed listening to, to the word. It was a, just such a great salvation and judgment. We're going to tie into aspects of that today as well. We are in Genesis chapter 8. Starting in verse 13, Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 13. If you have not already, please do turn there. Uh, read portions of what we'll cover uh, as we go through these different things. Roman, uh, Romans, <laughs> where did Romans come from? Genesis chapter 8, verses 13 through 17. In the 601st year, in the first month, first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, apparently there were puddles still. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So, oh, that's 17. We'll stop there. Trying to evaluate what God is communicating about God in this. Like Keith mentioned last week, you know, we think, oh, the story of Noah and the ark, it's really a story of God and the flood, uh, judgment and salvation. It's a story of, of God. And so in this, and then I think this does, the same theme continues into chapter 9, establishing something about God for us, because if we're just starting in Genesis and working our way through, we're learning about who God is for the first time, if you start at the beginning of that. I don't want to take those things for granted. And so we see throughout this passage and many other passages, but here we see right at the beginning, which is just interesting, not long or really long, depending on what we're supposed to understand from Genesis 1 through 8, but we have few interactions with God and people, and this is one of the most significant that's come in, right? God looking at the sinful world and then acting in judgment, yet acting in salvation for Noah. And we're still, again, like I said, we're trying to learn how is God going to respond to these type of things. And he establishes at the first aspects of it, and we're thousands of years removed from that, But looking back at what he said toward the beginning of his interactions of salvation and judgment, and then looking at it from this, say we learn across the scope of these things about the faithfulness of God. When he first said these things, in essence, not through Moses, but to Noah, there were few examples of faithfulness because so little of the history of redemption had taken place. But now... We can look back and see a track record of millennia of the fulfillment of promises. Because God is faithful, and because God is faithful, he always keeps his promises. And we see that uh, 
accomplished to Noah, but really, in a huge sense, accomplished since Noah, as we look back at those promises. And the first aspect that we can understand about God's promises or God's faithfulness from this text is right here in what we've just read, that God completes his promised salvation. God called Noah and his family and all the other creatures to exit the ark. Uh, This took place one year after they had entered it. We see that when they entered the 600th year of Noah's life, that's chapter 7, verse 11, second month, 17th day of the month, and then they finally leave on the second month of the 601st year on the 27th day of the month. And I read somewhere that the 10 days move it from a lunar year to a solar year. Maybe. I'm not smart enough astrologically or whatever to do that. But it was a year. We'll just we'll go with that. Chapter 6, God had promised that Noah and his family and all those other creatures in the ark, God promised they would be kept safe, that they would be kept alive. That's before they even get into the ark, before the rain had even started to fall. God made that promise to them. And then, as Keith walked us through, we have that whole familiar story happening across chapter 7 and then into chapter 8. And then here, at this point in chapter 8, we see what could be really easy for us to overlook, but we shouldn't, that God kept his word and didn't just save Noah from the outset of the flood to then live in the ark forever. That was never his purpose. God completed the salvation that he promised Noah, right? I'm going to put you into this safe place. I'm going to seal you into it. My judgment's going to fall. You're going to be kept safe, but not again, not just to stay. They had to come out in order to complete God's promise of salvation. And God always completes his promised salvation. So God who told them build, God who told them go, and who sealed the door, almost like he didn't unseal that door. It's like they just lifted the roof off of it. He was able to leave. He called his creation out of it. God has likewise promised to complete our salvation. And that might be like, wait a minute. So it's incomplete? What does that mean? At Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul thanks God right at the outset saying, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the work that God is doing in us is not complete. Many other passages emphasize uh, a promised completion or a promised fulfillment or finishing of our salvation, and that may raise a question in our minds, and I want to be clear, because I'm not saying that anything is lacking from our salvation. There are no leaks or structural flaws in our ark that is Jesus Christ our Savior. But we have not yet arrived at our destination. So the salvation, not in any way lacking a security aspect of it, but it isn't done yet. That's an important thing for us to keep in mind. In this way, thinking about the fact that that salvation has yet to be completed for us, right? Purchased, accomplished in the past, but yet we haven't seen the full and experienced all that there is to experience about that. Paul says to the Romans that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's that same sort of thing. The day of salvation purchased by Jesus Secured through faith in him by God's grace, 
is a day that is coming, and it is nearer today than it was yesterday. And it's nearer to us than it was 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote that. Not more certain, just nearer in time. We aren't given insight into Noah or his family's thinking during this whole story. God speaks, Noah acts. Noah, I don't, if, if I remember right, Noah doesn't say anything until the end of chapter 9. All, he just does. He believes and he acts, which is just great. As soon as he opens his mouth, it's because he had sinned, ironically. It'll be a few weeks before we get there. But like Keith said last week, right, this is a story of God and the flood, which is why it's important for us to see what God said, what God did. It's more that than it is about Noah and the ark. However, I bet that soon into Noah and Noah's family's time in the ark, and regularly throughout that long year, they were longing to see and stand on dry land again. They did not want to be cramped into that boat, uh, into that camper. For, no, no, boat. They did not want to be crammed in with all those animals rocking back and forth, just the darkness, the smell. That was not what they were made for. That was not what they were longing. I think they were eagerly awaiting the completion of their journey through a raging storm for those first 40 days and 40 nights, and then across this endless ocean for the next 10 and a half months of just wondering, when is God going to be done with this? I wonder if we are as eager for our journey to end. Are we longing for God to complete his promised salvation for us? Are we comfortable and sort of sitting in our boat? It's a good boat, but is this it? Is this all that you want of the salvation that God has promised you? Or do you want what's coming? One day, at God's command, our Lord Jesus Christ will return for us. And then he will bring us to our eternal home. A new, renewed earth where we will live with him forever. How did the song, God, uh, God and man are now intertwined? beautiful. Like in the days of Noah, God has promised to complete our salvation. We are waiting for that. But along with Noah, God's promise to complete our salvation is also in the context of a judgment. Salvation and judgment constantly also intertwined across the story of redemption. Like in 2 Peter, where Peter looks back on this, this is what he sees. And this is how he uses what God did to instruct his people on what he will do. Where the flood itself is actually a, a shadow or a type to be fulfilled in a greater judgment accompanying a greater salvation. We've probably each referenced this passage a number of times in this, but it, it's, it's, it's worth going to again. Second Peter chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. Starting verse 5. But by the same word that caused the flood, the word of God, by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which, because of that day, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The completion of our salvation is so much greater than what Noah and his family experienced. And just as God completed his promised salvation for them, he most certainly will complete his promised salvation for us. Because God is faithful, he always keeps his promises. He kept his promises to Noah. He will keep his promises to us. By faith, Noah once again obeyed God's word. Uh, Picking up in verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. As he leaves the ark, Noah's first act is one of worship. He took clean animals and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, kind of what we typically would think of as a, as a sacrifice or an offering, right? Fire underneath, animal laid, allowing the entire thing to be consumed. What do you think was the purpose of this sacrifice, though? And he offered this burnt offering. Uh, When you read about sacrifices across the Old Testament, what comes first to your mind? Confession or gratitude? Or sacrifices for the point of saying, I'm sorry? Or are they for the point of saying, thank you? And it's a trick question. Because sacrifices were given by God to his people to say both of those things. And I think that there's an element in which Noah is saying both of those things in his burnt offering. Because the offering was wholly burned, one author wrote, it it indicated the person's complete devotion to the Lord. I, I I have nothing to, to make excuses or shift blame off of my own sinfulness. 
I entirely need your undeserved forgiveness. And I could have done nothing to save myself. I am entirely grateful to you. Confession and gratitude. So for the Mosaic community, right, the first readers of this, having their own sacrificial system in place, it's in operation as they're reading across of these different things when they're reading it. It would have been viewed, the whole burnt offering, the person's complete devotion of the Lord, it would have been viewed as the appropriate sacrifice for Noah, who presented it freely out of thanksgiving to God for sparing his life. Right? But even in that, right, I am grateful to you for sparing my life, which I didn't deserve. Do you see the dual elements of a confession and a gratitude in Noah's sacrifice? Noah's sacrifice was an offering of thanksgiving. Was it also a propitiation or a covering for sin? Did it also have that element of confession? Well, when we read about burnt offerings in a number of different passages, even the kind of the closest person to Noah who would have offered a whole burnt offering was Job, right? Job, one of the early patriarchs, probably either early or around maybe the same time as Abraham offered that whole burnt offering for his children saying, in case they sinned, I want there to be a covering. And he did that every day, right? So you kind of have to have that sin covering part of it, but we also see that some whole burnt offerings were given just to express gratitude for salvation that had been experienced. So probably there are elements of both in Noah's offerings. Now, we don't offer animals as atonement for our sins, right? Uh, I mean, all of those animal sacrifices in the whole Old Testament from um, Abel's accepted sacrifice to now Noah's whole burnt offering here, the sacrifices offered by Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob in response to what God did, and then all the way through that Levitical system with all of those different types of sacrifices, all of those were shadows that could be lumped together and fulfilled by who? Jesus, right? Fulfilled by his one sacrifice. And where did that take place? On the cross, right? So they were all pointing forward to Christ. So his one sacrifice of himself on the cross fulfilled all of our need for atonement. So we don't offer animal sacrifices and those type of things. But in our worship daily on our own or with other members of our family or with other friends, and then weekly as a church family, there should always be elements of both confession and gratitude in our worship. And it's not inappropriate to call those things sacrifices, that we still live offering sacrifices to the Lord in the worship of confession and in gratitude. Well, what are the sacrifices that we offer? Because I'm not saying, right, kill an animal and burn it up. I don't think that would be appropriate for you to do. I mean, if you want to grill and give thanks, because sometimes they did that, like I, maybe that works. I don't, I don't think that works. I mean, by all means, grill and invite us over, but don't but it's not a sacrifice to the Lord. But we offer sacrifices like Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's a new covenant people of God in Christ. Paul brings 11 chapters of teaching to a head saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, because you have been spared, saved, out of judgment, I appeal to you on the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't kill yourself on the altar. 
Present your whole self as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What you offer, not for your sin, but because you've been saved. So in worship, you owe as much to God as Noah did. Are you offering what God has called you to offer? Your whole self. And then we see the same language picked up in Hebrews. And how, how fitting, how amazing that it would be in Hebrews. Where Hebrews sends a whole time being like this whole system pointed to Christ, has been fulfilled in Christ, and is, and is accomplished and then done away because of Christ. So don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to that tent. Don't offer animals sacrifices are done once for all. Christ offered a sacrifice. Then, as he comes to a conclusion, he says, because we are washed in the blood of Christ, because of everything that we have through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What does that mean? That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Acknowledging, I deserve judgment, but I've received an undeserved salvation. Therefore, I am grateful to you, right? Among the countless things, big and small, that we have to thank and praise God for on an hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, this passage in Genesis reminds us to praise God, the fruit of our lips, speaking it, right? Not just, not just a sense of gratitude, but an expression of gratitude to God, to others, saying, Thank you, God, I praise you, that you are faithful. And because God is faithful, he always keeps his promises. So we we respond in worship to that. He completes his promised salvation, and God continues his merciful patience. Promises made in Genesis we see fulfilled across millennia to today that God continues his merciful patience to us. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's offering. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You see, it's right there, verse 21. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. On the one hand, we know that God is spirit, Right? He does not have a body like a human. We're made in his image, but that doesn't mean that we are physically right, similar to him. So it's kind of like, okay, so God doesn't have a nose. Anthropomorphism. You know what that means, right? You'd be like, yeah, right? Let's, let's just like take all of the cool elements of that story and just like shove it in a box. Well, God doesn't have a nose. So this is just, come on. But on the other hand, it's true, God does not have a physical nose. But through the prophets, through the psalmists, a number of times, God contrasts himself with the false gods of the nations represented by idol statues, making fun of them and being like, well, they have eyes, but what good are those eyes? They can't see. Well, yeah, you you may have shaped ears for them, but they can't hear with them. They may have a nose. They can't smell. I mean, look look up their little nostril, right? It stops. Nothing's happening. 
in their nose, their hands. And the point of the contrast is that God does see. God does hear. God does smell. This same phrase is found throughout the Pentateuch to express God's favor towards sacrifice and worshiper. In Exodus and in Leviticus and in Numbers, a number of different times, it's like, this is the kind of thing that you're going to offer and it will come before me as a pleasing aroma. And then we see the contrast of that through the prophets as well, which is like, I'm just sick of smelling your foul offerings. You're not offering them in faith. It's some side thing. You're treating it as a superstition. It's just kind of like, it makes me gag. Have you ever smelled something really good? Get to smell good things all the time when Leanne's cooking, right? It's like, oh, that smells good. And the, the longer the day is, the hungrier it is, the better it smells, right? It's like, oh, this is good bread or San Francisco chops. All of you guys kind of enjoy those. It's like, oh, it smells, so I can't wait, right? Mouth starts to water. This is pleasing. And you ever smelled something that's really not pleasing? Right? It's like, oh, this milk's probably fine. Oh, no. No, it's not fine. Like sourdough bread smells great. Sourdough starter, it's like, oof, that's ripe. That's, that is sour. Emphasis on the sour part of things. And we respond well. So we, we understand what God's saying here, right? We, we don't want to shove it into some box and be like, well, not really. But we also should just kind of let it resonate with us like it's supposed to. Now, you know what it's like to smell something that's good, right, Malachi? You know what it's like, right? God smelled this, and he was like, yes, this is good. I receive what Noah is offering to me. He offered this in confession and gratitude. I receive it as such. And when we offer ourselves to God through Christ, we offer the sacrifice of praise from our lips to him. He, he hears, he smells that aroma, and he is pleased with us, pleased with our worship, pleased with your worship if offered through Christ. And it's not because God needs it. That's what, this is, I don't know if you knew this. Probably, you're all smart people. Other ancient cultures, very, very early cultures, had flood stories as well. It's in a number of different places. Much has been written, much has been debated on uh, which of these stories come first. And people who don't believe the Bible are like, ah, he's just copying. And then we'd be like, no, they're just copying. No, you're copying. No, you're copying. You know, back and forth, those type of things. Well, because the Bible is true, I believe these things really happened, right? You all agree? Like, it happened. Uh, But we can also kind of look at the chronology of those type of things. uh, Just like, well, how do those stories come about? Well, the event happened. God did what he says that he did. And, and then they really happened. And Noah's children, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and his grandchildren, they would have passed along what happened. Like Keith just kept drawing back, like Adam telling his story to his descendants. Passing along, this is what God was like. This was what the garden was like. Oh, tell us about the tree. Oh, I don't want to talk about the tree. Right? Those type of things. Drawing his people in and sharing as God has always called his people to share the truth of those things. So they would have passed along what happened as a spoken story long before anyone wrote about them. But we read and we see and we experience people increasingly rejecting God and altering the true story that they had received and replacing the one true and living God with false gods and making them responsible for the event that actually took place. And those stories were then written down, and they've been uncovered by archaeologists. You can read about them. 
Uh, you can read those accounts. And after those, fall, after those false stories were written down and shared, true event, oral tradition, misinterpretation, false telling of the story written down and shared, then Moses comes along aware of those written accounts, very likely, right? It's like, well, where do you have proof of that? It's like that he was in Egypt, <laughs> center of the world, and how information always spreads among human beings. So I don't have a chapter and verse, but I don't think that I need one, right? They were aware of the Egyptian creation accounts, and then he combats that. And I think he would have been aware of these false tellings of this story and writing both to tell the truth and to oppose the error. And one interesting element of those other flood accounts are the responses of the gods, among many different things. I'm not going to get into all of it. But the responses of the gods to the sacrifice that's offered by the Noah figure when he leaves the ark. Because one of those stories has been like seven days. The gods are sick at how noisy the, the humans are. Can't get any sleep around here. It's like a, they're like grumpy dads. So like, I just kill them all. Uh, that's obviously more than a dad would say. Uh, it's like, Ugh, what do we have to do to get some quiet around here? I just want to get some sleep. I know, we'll wipe out all of humanity. Like, wow. And then one, of, one guy's spared on the boat seven days later, right? Floodwaters recede. They come out, they offer a sacrifice. And you know what the gods are at this point? The gods are starving. We're so hungry, and they, they swarm on the sacrifices like flies. Like, that's the picture that's written in this other account. Like, oh, yeah, we'll just, just consume this food. I guess we won't kill the humans anymore because we need them to feed us. It's pathetic. And then with that, Moses writes, what was God like? God's not needy. God's not weak. God's not like the humans who invented those other gods? God's different. He simply smells the offering and he is pleased with it. He didn't need it from them, but he received it from, from Noah and his family. And in response to Noah's sacrifice, the Lord speaks. But interestingly, first, he speaks to himself. Did you notice that? When the Lord smelled, this is verse 21 again, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, so God is stating his purpose to himself, not to Noah. He will speak to Noah. That's all of chapter 9. Is God communicating even some of these same things that he said to himself, communicating it to Noah in more detail? But first, he speaks to himself. He states his purpose. And what is God's purpose? What, what has he decided to do? He has decided to mercifully show patience to humanity, to us, despite our sin. God continues his merciful patience. He promised that he would, and then he does. And he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And this is the same kind of phrase that we find in chapter 6 for why God did it. And so it can be kind of confusing to be like, I see how evil their hearts are, so I'm going to crush them in judgment. And then after the judgment, he's like, I see how, how uh, cursed and, and corrupt their hearts are, and I'm not going to judge again like that. And it's just like, like what, 
what changed? And so really it would be better to read instead of just for the intention of man's heart, uh, we should read that as saying even though. Nothing has changed in humanity from chapter 6 to the end of chapter 8 or to now. Nothing has changed. Our hearts are still, the inclination, the intention of our hearts are evil from youth. That here he is stating the floodwaters of judgment and cleansing did not wipe clean the sinful hearts of humans. And of course, God already knew that would be the case. He sent that in judgment, but not thinking like, well, if I just start again, again, then everything will be okay. Like God knew what the problem was, where it resided. God is merciful. God is patient. God is long-suffering. Suffers long. Suffers observing and being offended by our sin for a long time. God is slow to anger. Despite our sin, because these things are true, God's mercy and patience, long-suffering, the fact that he's slow to anger, because of those things are true, God has been and is merciful and patient with us. That's the promise that he makes. And he has been. It's by the Lord's mercy that you are not consumed, that I am not consumed because of my sin, even though I deserve it. But this does not mean that God would never punish sinners. It does not mean that God would, would never wipe them all out in judgment again. But Across the course of history, from the promise being made millennia ago to the present, and and then continuing, these different acts of judgment, storms, floods, right? The wiping out of life has happened locally, but it has never happened globally or universally like it does here. There's never been a catastrophe of this magnitude, and God himself has promised that there never will be again. A global flood like this has never happened since, and it never will. Never. It can't. Because the God who caused the first said he would never cause a second. And there's another sense that this will never happen again, that all life on earth will just be wiped out. Because even when the final global judgment comes, many will be spared from that judgment because of the salvation of Christ's people who have salvation in him through faith. You will not suffer the judgment of God on that day. If you're alive when it happens, you will not suffer it because of the promise of God. That you are safe in Christ like Noah was safe in the ark. And even though God has continued his merciful patience with sinful humanity, even up to this very moment of this very day, yet final judgment is coming when Christ returns. The day of judgment has also been promised, and it is coming as surely as the flood came. See, God is not just faithful concerning his promises of salvation, and God's not just faithful in his merciful patience. He's also faithful to bring about the judgment that he has promised. 
Let's learn from Jesus the lesson of Noah's day. This is Matthew chapter 24. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken in judgment. I think the context is saying here, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken out in judgment. The other left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. God's mercy, his patience, and his long-suffering toward his unbelieving enemies will come to an end. After all, he is slow to anger. That doesn't mean that he's empty of anger. Do you see the difference between those things? Right? Patience doesn't mean that the, the cause is gone. Right? Suffering long, not suffering eternally. And slow to anger, not empty of anger. And so God's patience has a day when it will come to an end. His long, he suffered long and then his suffering will stop. And although he is slow to anger, his anger is coming. And the judgment of God that's promised. So, so don't presume on the merciful patience of God. Confess your sin to him today. Right? And flee for salvation into the one Jesus Christ that he has promised. Ask him for his forgiveness based on the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ, and you will receive that forgiveness. No one comes to him for forgiveness in the name of Christ and is turned away. His mercy will then be yours forever. Is it, is it yours? Have you received the mercy of God? It has promised salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Do so if you haven't. This is what God has promised us. And because God is faithful, he always keeps his promises. And there's another interesting point in this, that God maintains creation's rhythms. I see that in verse 22. Right, he completes his promised salvation um, and however I worded the other point, something about merciful patience. What did I say? Continues. That was a hard word to remember. God continues his merciful patience and God maintains creation's rhythms. While the earth remains, verse 22, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Because God's not only the creator of all things, he's also the sustainer of all things. Like Paul wrote to the Colossians, by Christ, all things hold together. Just as surely as Christ created all things, he controls and sustains all things. And so the sowing of seeds and then the harvesting of fruits or vegetables, those are all under the sovereign control of God. What your garden does or doesn't produce this year, God's in control of that. Uh, the tilt of the earth on its axis and our orbit around the sun influencing the cold and heat that we feel as well as the various seasons of spring and then summer and then fall and then winter followed by spring and summer and fall and winter. These things were planned by God. Just because we understand more about why those seasons come makes it no less a fact that they happen because of God. 
God knew about the tilt of the earth before we did. Because he tilted it. They're planned by God. They're maintained by God. The earth will not stop rotating, and it will not stop orbiting, and the tilt will not change, and the sun will not burn out because God maintains it. And that earth, the earth's daily rotation toward the sun, away from the sun, that was God's design. It continues by his divine power. And there, there are needed times of rain, and there are needed times of, of dryness, it just rained all the time. We wouldn't be able to harvest the, the, the vegetables, the grain, those things. They would rot. So we need it to rain so that things will grow. We need it to stop raining so that we can harvest. And God provides both of those things in order for our food to grow. And, and all of these, God promises that all of these will continue as the normal expected rhythms of our life on earth while the earth remains And even here, while the earth remains, even all the way back there, is that looking to a distant future when the earth that we know it, as we know it, will be changed. It will be renewed or replaced, depending on how we're supposed to understand that, right? Is it just all burned to ashes and a whole new one? Or is it just burned clean and then rebuilt? New heaven, stupid lights won't flicker. But until whatever that renewal or replacement is, it takes place, until that catastrophic and glorious day, we can expect the rhythms of creation to normally continue because God is faithful. And I think of all sorts of other rhythms about that too. The, the, the water cycle or the, the carbon and oxygen cycle, the nitrogen cycle, all these things that God built into this, they're just going to continue working, right? Evaporation is still going to happen and condensation and precipitation. Did I get all of them, I think? Those things will continue because they are by God's design. They continue by his power and faithfulness. And each of these rhythms were designed by God and they began at creation, but there was a sense in which they were interrupted by the catastrophe of the flood. Right? There was an interruption to the way that things normally happen. During that year of God's judgment on the earth, some of these, these rhythms uh, didn't function normally. Like outside of the ark, everything that breathed died. And all of the plants on earth were covered by water. That's not normal. <laughs> That's not the way for life on earth to flourish. That was the point. Obviously, there was no planting or harvesting, Right? Because there was no one to plant or harvest and there was no ground visible. It rained more than normal. It's an understatement. And then it stopped raining. Right? 40 days of rain and then 325 days of no rain. And by now, the, the, now that the flood waters had receded, God is saying that the normal created rhythms have been restored. They, they would be restarted. There's a sense of a, a new creation happening even here. And God in his faithfulness promises that these rhythms will continue while the earth remains. And I thought about this. I tried to think through different people thinking about this across scripture. And I think that there are four, at least four, responses to specifically the faithfulness of God in maintaining creation's rhythms, how do people respond to these type of things? Well, first, uh, there's people respond with doubt. 
They see the rhythms. Maybe they've come to a better understanding of why it happened, and they're like, oh, those superstitious people, they thought God did everything, but we know better. This is why it happens. And so they look at the creation's rhythms, and they come to an understanding of how the processes work a little bit more, and then they doubt that God's actually in control of it. They misinterpret his merciful patience in maintaining creation's rhythms. They misinterpret that as evidence of his absence or his inactivity or even some, somehow a proof that he doesn't exist because of the rhythms that he is maintaining. So they, no, nope, we're not there yet. I didn't see doubt. So doubt is the first aspect. Like in 2 Peter, the passage that we've already read, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so since it's continuing, he's not here. He's not going to do anything. Everything just stays the same. Wow. How, how quick are we to misinterpret what God has done? Somehow flip it on its head. So some would doubt that God is the one who's maintaining these things. But we submit ourselves to the word. And there's also a, a response of presumption. Um, taking God's faithfulness for granted. Or just assuming and thinking that it is automatic. If I do this, then this will definitely happen. I'll plant, it'll rain. Right? And after it rains, those things will grow. I'll have enough food. Because that's what happens. Just look at these rhythms. Everything's just always going to stay. And the Israelites... We're guilty of this throughout their history. It's like, well, of course God's going to provide. Of course God's going to send rain. Of course God's going to bless our harvest. But then in, we read an instance of this type of presumption in Jeremiah chapter 5. This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. <clears throat> they have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain. Let us, they don't say, let us fear the Lord our God who keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. It's like, well, of course he's going to send rain. Of course he's going to send harvest. But then he stopped. Right? And a local judgment came on those people where there wasn't the rain and there wasn't the harvest and they began to starve to death. And he says, it's your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. We cannot take for granted what God does. We must respond in gratitude for the fact that God maintains creation's rhythms. And instead of being grateful for it, so often in our sin, we just take it for granted. Well, of course it's going to. There's no of course. It's because God's maintaining it doesn't make an aspect automatic. And then there's another response to creation's rhythms and it's one of frustration. Frustration over the apparent emptiness of these repetitions. And interestingly, these reliable rhythms, day to night to day to night, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, plant, harvest, eat, plant, harvest, eat. All of these different rhythms. They apparently proved frustrating to the second wisest man who ever lived. First is, who's the wisest man who ever lived? Jesus. Second wisest man? Solomon. 
Solomon understood, because of the wisdom that God had given him, he understood how all of creation is woven together to work perfectly. And yet, Solomon writes this in his treatise on frustration, Ecclesiastes. He's an old guy. I both don't want to be an old guy. And some of you are like, you're not an old guy. I like you. And some of you are like, no, you're an old guy. And we're not, I'm not as fond of that. Sometimes I feel like a grumpy old guy, though. But a lot of the old guys that I know aren't grumpy, so I don't know why I assume I'll be a grumpy old guy, but I do. Solomon's a bit of a grumpy old guy. This is what he writes. Vanity of vanity. Vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. And the wind blows to the south, and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns, and all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been done. It's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Life just happens. It just goes on and on. And if things don't work the way that you want them to, it's super frustrating, right? It's like, ah, oh, it didn't work. I've got to try this again. And, and then if they do go the way that you want it to, what happens? You're like, now what? You ever long for something and not gotten it and felt that disappointment? Well, we know that. You ever long for something and gotten it and felt that disappointment? Day and night and day and night. And maybe my fruit trees will take and maybe they won't, but I've got to wait a few years even to find out. Maybe the chickens will lay, maybe the chickens won't lay. Maybe the plants will go. But even if the plants go and we have a big harvest, then all of the plants will die. And we just got to plant again. Ugh, this life. And <laughs> we look, I look, I just, I feel this, right? It's kind of like, what's the point? Seasons come, seasons go, babies are born, praise God, babies will be born, praise God, sometime, and then they're going to grow up, right, and then they get married, oh, it's wonderful, we got a marriage, Saturday, how great is this, and then Lord willing, all these marriages will produce even more babies, and then those babies will grow up, and they'll get married, and then they'll have babies, but in the same time as people are getting married, having babies, other people are growing old, and they're dying. the day, the glorious day of the Cooper's wedding, same day that Don Ashmus died. What a, what an Ecclesiastes moment. Joy and sadness at the same time. My heart torn in two different directions. Nations rise and they fall round and round and round. Solomon's frustrated by this, or he's confused, or he's discouraged, or he's puzzled. There's lots of different ways to try to understand this word vanity. I had a Hebrew professor, so he's smarter than me. He said, all of life is frustratingly enigmatic. Sounds like something that a Hebrew professor would say. 
just mm, can't get my hands around it. And I just don't, he works through this and it's just frustrated and it feels empty, but then he works through it, thankfully, by the rest of Ecclesiastes. And although he is puzzled, he recognizes that the frustrations that he feels points to a greater reality. Because you're not supposed to be satisfied with the rhythms of this creation. You're not supposed to be satisfied with this. God maintaining creation's rhythms now, whether you're glad for that or whether you're frustrated for it, are all supposed to be pointing you to God and to a greater day where there will not be any frustrations. An eternal day without sickness or tears or death of those type of things, right? So the frustrations point you to eternity. Have you been pointed Solomon feels this, and so he he says that the greater reality is eternity and the God of eternity. And living for him is the only thing that lasts and endures, and serving him provides us with true and lasting purpose. So he says, remember your creator, especially in the days of your youth. Because if you guys that are young, you're you're probably not frustrated by the longevity of life. Told you, I'm turning into... Grumpy old guys, pray for me about this. Well, that happened last year. Happened again. It won't work this time. Blah, blah, blah. Remember your creator, young or old. Eternity in our hearts. So when you're joyful about the seasons, you look to God. When you're frustrated about the seasons, you look to God and to the greater reality of those type of things. And as we see that maintaining of faithfulness, I think the even best response to the maintenance of creation's rhythms is just an ever-increasing trust in God's faithfulness. He always has kept his word, and he always will keep his word. And if it's happened for millennia, it has, it, it will Whatever he has promised, he will, because God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. And all of God's faithfulness in the past points to his continuing faithfulness in the present and in the future. Thousands of years of human history, God has been faithful to every single one of his promises. Every single day, he has been faithful to, every, to, to keep his promise not to destroy the earth. Every time that the sun rises and then sets is a reminder of the faithfulness of God who maintains creation's rhythms. So will he keep his word to you? Yes, because he's kept his word to all of creation in every single day and season and harvest. Why would we doubt that he won't be faithful to his promises to us, us, his people? Right? Not just that the sun's going to set today and come up tomorrow. Not just that the summer that we're entering into will, will go into fall and then into winter. Not just the physical promises that God has made. Right? We are the, the recipients, the inheritors of spiritual promises. Straight from the mouth of God to us, his children, his people, and even more sure than these physical rhythms in creation, more sure than even the whole created universe, is the fulfillment of all of God's plans and promises for us in Christ. Jesus says that, Matthew 24, 
35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then Isaiah pointed back to this as well. Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you more sure than this creation and God maintaining this creation's rhythm is the fulfillment of all of his promises to us. Because God is faithful, he always keeps his promises. And how is it that a perfectly righteous God extends faithfulness to sinners like us? What's the, what's the peace that makes that impossible reality an eternal reality? Why does God always keep his promises to us and how, will, how can we know that he will? And the answer is, again, Jesus, Jesus solves the problems of us not understanding why God treats us the way that he does. Jesus is the answer to that. All of God's promises to us will be fulfilled. And Paul just celebrates this in 2 Corinthians 1, saying all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Christ is the reason that God's promises to us will be fulfilled, are being fulfilled. And at our Lord's table, God points backward to the cross and he promises that Christ's death was sufficient for our forgiveness. And at the table, God promises that through faith in Christ, forgiveness is ours. Through faith in Christ, forgiveness is or could be yours. And then at the table, the, God points forward and he promises that Christ will return. The price has been paid. Forgiveness can be yours through faith. Christ is coming back. They're the promises of God for us. And because God is faithful, he always keeps his promises.